Amen. Thank you, Pastor Rip. You know, um, and Tom and Jackie, great job in worship today as usual. Good job. You know, um, the prayer time that we have here is really important. And I don't want you to ever think that this is just a way to spend 5 or 10, 15 minutes in our service. But, you know, for some people that we pray for, recognize that we're the only ones that are praying. Recognize that. For some people, there's no one in their life that's praying for them besides this church in this particular moment. And how significant that is. So don't ever think that things like this are wasted, that we need to get on to the next part of the service so we can get out by 12 o'clock. Because if we do that, do you know we're short, what we're shortcutting and what we're hurting, how we're hurting people? So this is important. This is good stuff. So thank you, Pastor, for being so diligent and so consistent in your prayer time for us. We really appreciate that. Do you appreciate Pastor Rip? Amen. Yes, thank you. So this morning, um, I want to just set the expectation again for why we're talking about the things that we're talking about. And maybe some would you say, well, what are we talking about? <laughs> We've been talking about the end times. We've been talking about things that are going to happen in our future. And, you know, if you have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, recognize who you are. You are part of the bride of Christ, right? The bride of Christ is what we're referenced as, as the church. And Jesus is coming back for his bride, so when we're talking about things of the end, like we're talking about, what are we talking about? We're talking about our wedding day. We're talking about our wedding day and the things that thereafter come. Now, you talk to any bride. Go back to before you were married, women, here. How much planning did you put into your wedding? How many people did you talk to about your wedding? How did you look forward to your wedding? Was it a day of dread? Or was it a great, a day of great joy and anticipation? You see, the world has taken the joy, the flesh, Satan, has taken the joy out of Christians anticipating our wedding day. And so when we talk about the end times, recognize what we're talking about. We're talking about the most exciting days of our life. This is not a doom and gloom message. There's no doom and gloom if you're a child of God. If you are part of the bride of Christ, this is a time of joy that we are anticipating. And therefore, we should want to learn as much as we can and make as many plans as we can about the wedding day that's going to happen. And so I enjoy talking about eschatology, which is a big word for the end times, which is a big word for the rapture and tribulation for everything thereafter, because we're talking about our day of our wedding and the days thereafter living as the wife of Jesus. Can somebody say amen? In fact, can everybody say amen? Because if you are a child of God, this is a good thing to be talking about. Nothing here to be shamed about. And I don't know why we're not talking about it. I don't know why pastors and churches, I talk to some people, I've been doing a little survey, unofficial, about what's going on in other churches. And you know, there are some pastors that have never talked about it. Never talked about it. And I'm thinking, why aren't you talking about this? What's wrong with our theology if we're not talking about our wedding day? And so I get great joy out of this. And I hope you do too. 
So today we're going to continue to keep talking about it. And, and we've been talking about the rapture and the tribulation. And we've been talking about all the things that are going to be happening in that time, in that time frame. Today I want to talk about one of the judgments that's going to be coming at the end of the tribulation. It's called the judgment. It's called the sheep and goat judgment. Sheep and goat judgment. Now, some would call this a parable, but it's not a parable. Jesus talks about other parables at the end of the time in Matthew chapter 25, but this is not a parable. This is actually a judgment, and I want to talk about this so we can have a better understanding of what this is. Now, to set this up, we've already identified that the tribulation period is a seven-plus-year period because it begins at the signing of the peace treaty with the Antichrist in Israel, We believe the rapture has already happened. The church, the bride of Christ, has already been raptured out, and now it's the seven-year tribulation time. And in the middle of that seven-year tribulation time, or the midpoint of it, which is 1,260 days, the Antichrist will defile the temple that has been established in that first three and a half years where there's been uh, temple worship. And he will set himself up in that temple, and he, he will declare himself as God. And that begins the second half of the tribulation. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. Now, Daniel is an Old Testament prophet. This was prophesied 500 plus years prior to the birth of Christ. And he talks about it. He says in verse 27 that he will confirm a covenant with many. He is the Antichrist with many for for one seven, seven years, and in the middle of that seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering, and at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So that is identifying the midpoint of the tribulation. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says this, he will oppose, he again is the Antichrist, will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, at this point in time, the peace treaty is null and void. He's ripped it up. And now he's declaring full-fledged war on the nation of Israel and all believers that have come to Christ since the rapture period. And all people will be required to worship him, the Antichrist, through the false prophet, or die. There is no middle ground here. It's going to be very, uh, a very troubling time. So moving on here, in Daniel chapter 12, he goes on to talk about this a little bit. Again, I'm setting up where we're going. Daniel chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. From the time that the holy, that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, that's the midpoint of the tribulation, there will be 1290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1335th day. Now, this is getting some confusing dates now because we're taught that the tribulation is seven years long, which again, these are uh, the Jewish calendar, which is 30 days in a month, so it makes the math easy. It's 1,260 days in the first half and 1,260 days in the second half of the of the tribulation. But Daniel now is talking about 1,290 days and 1,335 days. So what's happening in these days? A little chart here that will help us understand this a little bit better. So the first 1,200, the 1,260 days is the second half of the Great Tribulation, and then 1,290 days... And 1,335 days. So there's there's a total of 75 days here that have to be accounted for. 30 days, 1260 plus 90 uh, plus 30 is 1290, 
at another 45 is 1,335 days. So there's a total of 75 days that we have to account for. What's going on here in these days? Well, the likely theory is something like this, that in that 30 days after Christ's return will be the battle of Armageddon and the cleaning up and the rebuilding of a destroyed land, the land of Israel thereafter. And then the second, or that 30, 45 days will be the time of the sheep and goats judgment that will likely take place in that remaining 45 days or something in that nature. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly what's happening in that 75-day period, but it does tell us that there is going to be a judgment that happens prior to the thousand-year millennial kingdom. So another chart here to help you understand it a little bit better. There's going to be the seven-year tribulation. Then there's going to be that period of time of 75 days before the millennial kingdom is established. And then we have um, time thereafter, which we'll talk about maybe more in the future as well. So I'm going to talk now about, Matt, go to, if you have your Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 25. And we're going to read about the judgment of the sheep and goats. Chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. So it's a relatively lengthy passage, but let's read through this and we'll talk about it. Beginning at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to eat, drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to you and visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from you. Me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? Verse 45, and he will reply, I truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you help us discern the words of this judgment. What is it and when is it and how do we deal with it today? Make it real, Lord. Help us to understand the reality of what's ahead so that we can have joy and peace in the time that we live in. And most importantly, that we can be productive in the kingdom, winning others for you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there are four questions that I want to address here regarding this judgment. Number one, what is the time and place of the judgment? Secondly, who is being judged? 
Thirdly, who are these brothers of mine that this passage refers to? And then fourthly, what are the consequences of the judgment? A lot here to talk about. We'll get through it as quickly as you can, but I want to be efficient in it. So first of all, what is the time and place of this judgment? Matthew chapter 25, 31 says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. This verse identifies that the time that we're talking about here is when the Son of Man comes or after the second coming of Christ. Obviously, the place of judgment is on earth. Remember, the second coming of Christ is really a twofold separate event. We have to make sure we keep this in mind. The first phase is the rapture of the church, which is a silent event. The world does not see it or hear it. It's, it's in the twinkling of an eye. And those that have died in Christ will rise to meet Christ in the air. And all those who are alive will join them as well and will be raptured out of the world. That's the rapture. That's the first phase of the second coming. It's a silent event. But the second coming, the second phase is the actual return of Christ to the world. This is the time when he actually touches down and he places his feet on the Mount of Olives. And in further scriptures, we're not going to get into today, that when he touches down, that the mountains actually split in two, a create valley is created, and geographically, life, the world changes. I mean, literally, when Jesus touches down, the mountains split. It's a major, major event. And this is not a secret event. The whole world will see him. They will acknowledge him as either king and master, or they'll be quaking in fear because of the judgment that's coming. It's a big event. You will not miss, no one will miss the second coming of Christ. John the Revelator says this in Revelation chapter 1, at the very beginning of the book of Revelation, the seventh verse, he says, Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. And then he talks in Revelations 19, further on, he describes the second coming this way. In verse 11 through 14, he says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And then that verse goes on to describe the events that happen when Jesus comes back. Now, what's significant here is that we're coming back with him at this time. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. That's us. That's the church. We've been in heaven for that previous seven years getting married. We were the, we were the bride of Christ. Now at this time we are the wife of Christ. We're married. We're the, the, the bride, the wedding has been consummated in heaven over the seven years as a Jewish wedding is consummated over a period of seven days. The seven years of the tribulation were great travail on earth, but great joy in heaven as the wedding was happening. And now we come back with Christ and we're witnessing everything that happens in his second coming and all the things that happen thereafter. That's exciting to me. That's exciting to me because I'm looking forward uh, just the honeymoon phase and is looking forward to buying our first house together. And I mean, this is what this is talking about. 
This is why we need to get excited about studying these things. So here we are. We're back at this chart. The timing of the sheep and goats judgment will be after the second coming of Christ, somewhere during that 75 days period after he returns and before he sets up his thousand-year millennial reign. So let's go to question number two. Who is being judged? Well, Matthew chapter 25, verse 32. All the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. All the nations. So who are the nations? It's a good question. Who are the nations? Well, the Greek word for nations also means multitudes or people groups or simply Gentiles. So he's talking about the Gentiles. He's not talking about the Jewish people right now. He's talking about the Gentiles. John is indicating that this will be a worldwide event. Everyone, everyone will be held accountable for their own personal actions in regards to how they treated the Jewish people. And we know that this is, does not include the church or the bride of Christ, as we've been talking about, because this is happening after the second coming. So no matter if you're a pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, the church is gone by now. But, however, this should create some questions for those that are post-tribbers, because if the rapture happens right before Jesus' second coming, in other words, if the church is raptured and then immediately turns around and comes back with Christ as the second coming, then there won't be any sheep left to judge. Because all those that were raptured are all those that were saved. There will be nothing but bad people left on earth. So there will be no reason. There will be no sheep and goat judgment at that time because there won't be any time for people to get saved and become the sheep nations. So that does cause some problems in that in that thinking. But the Gentile people here, are being judged, these people have survived the Great Tribulation. It's amazing to think that there will be people that will survive the Great Tribulation when it's talked about the half or a third of the population and another third, and and basically two-thirds of the population will be decimated. Billions of people will will, will have died in the Tribulation. And so those that have survived here, some of those will have accepted Christ after the rapture. There will be a great revival in the tribulation time that will be, uh, that will happen as a result of the missionaries, the 144,000 Jewish missionaries, the gospel angel that is proclaiming the gospel throughout the world, and the two witnesses that are setting up on the Temple Mount. There will be a great revival. So some of these people um, these Gentiles will, will be Christ followers, but others will continue to reject Christ because they will have, they will have bought into the Antichrist world, one world system and they will be, they'll have received the mark of the beast and they will be unredeemable. And the, jo- and the prophet Joel, Joel, Joel talks about this. He foretells this judgment in Joel chapter three, where that the nation of Israel will, will be restored and God will gather the nations, the Jew, the Gentiles, together in the valley of Jehoshaphat to hold them accountable for the way that they've treated his people. 
Joel chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. It says, In those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations. Again, the nations refer to the Gentile nations. All the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I will put them on trial for what they did to my inheritance, my people Israel, because they scattered my people among the nations and divided up the land. This is a trial. This is a judgment now of all the Gentile people groups for what they did or didn't do for the Jewish people as the great tribulation was unleashed on the world. So who is being judged? The Gentiles are being judged. That's the, that's what the judgment is. Now, the third question is, who are these brothers of mine? Jesus refers to. We have to skip down to verse 40 here to see what Jesus is talking about. Matthew chapter 25, verse 40. The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So the most obvious answer to those people would be that these brothers and sisters are Jewish people. Remember, what is Jesus? Who is Jesus? What's his lineage? He's Jewish. Jesus is a Jew. And so these brothers and sisters that he's talking about are the Jewish brothers and sisters. Whatever you've, whatever you did for my people, Jesus is saying, you've did, you've done for me. And again, let's go back and visit that, that prophetic, um, uh, scripture in, in Joel, Joel chapter three, verse two. He says, skip down to the end. There I will put them on trial, the Jew, the, the Gentile people for what they did Again, to my inheritance, my people Israel, because they scattered my people among the nations and they divided up my land. So the brothers and sisters that's being referred to, to here is the Jewish nation, the Jewish people. Now recognize that during the tribulation, all people will be subject to great persecution during the second half or the great tribulation. But recognize also that the Jewish people will be singled out by the Antichrist in a final effort to eliminate them from the planet once and for all. The Antichrist will be after every Christian, every person, but especially the Jews. And you know, if you look at history, we've seen this happening forever, haven't we? Anti-Semitism has always been a problem. In fact, it's rising again. Anti-Semitism in the world is becoming a big deal again. Why is that? Why is the world against the Jews? Have you ever thought about it? This little country that's about the size of one of our smaller states on the East Coast, why is the world focused on Israel? Why is there so much attention placed on Jewish people? Because they're God's people. Because they're God's chosen people. Hey, listen. It doesn't mean that they're special. It means they're chosen. And here's the thing. They need Jesus, just like you and I need Jesus. A Jewish person today that dies without Christ is going to hell. Just like every other person is dying and going to hell. So don't place them at a higher level. They're just chosen because God has used chosen to use these people really to get to the whole world. He's used the Jewish people to become 
um, a, a, an avenue of salvation to the whole world. Because Jesus is a Jew, he brought salvation to the Jews that the Gentiles could be saved. But they've been in battle for all time. Through all times, the enemy, Satan, has been after trying to wipe out the Jewish people for all time. And we've seen it. Think about the Holocaust. Think about the atrocities that Hitler and the Third Reich did on the Jewish people. Six million plus Jewish people were killed in that period of time. And we've seen it all throughout history. But recognize now that that at this time, the Antichrist is even more furious because there's 144,000 Jewish missionaries that are protected by God, that are doing a great revival, that are doing a great work for God in this terrible time. And so the, the Antichrist is even more furious at these people. Revelation chapter 7, verses 2 and 4 says, Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of God of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. So, see, God, this is the, the tribulation. It's also God pouring out his wrath. So God is going to destroy things. But before he does that, verse 3 says, Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from the tribes of Israel. And if you go down and read that passage further, it identifies all the 12 tribes of Israel, and 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes equals 144,000 Jewish missionaries. And these men are, are going to be sealed by God, that they will not be able to be harmed in the tribulation. So imagine how that makes the Antichrist feel. He's going after these people and he can't touch them because God has put a seal on them. Not on anybody else. Recognize that. All the other Christians that are saved in the tribulation, they're not protected. They can be persecuted. They can be beheaded. And there will be many martyred during the tribulation of Christians, but not these 244,000 Jewish missionaries. And recognize here that Satan hates all people. I'm sorry, Satan is not your friend. So for the worldly people that are listening to this right now, you might think you're partying with Satan. Well, you're not partying with him because he hates you. And he's out to destroy you. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Peter says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, not your friend, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to party with. No, looking for someone to devour. He's not out to have fun with you. He's out to kill you. He's out to destroy you. And here's the thing about the devil, and we know it if you've been in the world at all. You, you, you get deceived to do something. You, you, you buy into whatever that, that, whatever that thing is. You know, and you think you're going to, you know, enjoy it. But, you know, as soon as you do it, whatever it is, the devil is right there to say, you are a loser. <laughs> I, I can't believe you believed me, is what he's saying. I can't believe that you bought into this. So he's tempting you to do the things that you do, thinking that you're going to have an, an advocate or, or, or someone to party with, and he turns around and uses it against you. So that's just how evil it is. But it's more personal than this. It's more personal for, for of Satan just hating mankind. There's more to it because He's as selfish as they get. So as much as he hates you, he's more in love with himself. 
And he's more concerned about his own welfare. He wants to destroy all people, not just because he hates them, but because if he can destroy all people, he thinks he can still win the war. Remember the seed war we talked about a few weeks ago? The seed war that began 6,000 years ago in the Garden of Eden? Let me remind you. Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. It says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust of all the days of your life. And here's the, here it is. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So there is a battle that begins in the Garden of Eden between Satan and the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman, who is that? It's Jesus. The seed of the woman is Jesus, and Satan and his demons are in war at this point in time. So Satan has been trying to defeat the Jewish people since this day. I mean, the Jewish people weren't even established yet. They weren't established until Abraham came on the scene a few hundred years, thousand years later. But Satan was already out to destroy all people. And here, Satan was able to strike the heel of the woman's seed in that he thought he won when Jesus died on the cross. 4,000 years later, 2,000 years ago from today, Jesus died on the cross, and Satan thought he won because Jesus was dead. Finally, Jesus was dead. He killed him. But what did Jesus do? He went down in the pit. He went down in hell where Satan had the keys that Adam had given him 4,000 years previously. And Jesus, because of his perfect sacrifice, he came down and he, he legitimately took back the keys of death, took back the keys of that Satan had, and he took them away and he said, no, Satan, you've really lost this time. You thought you did something good by having me, killing me? I am sealing your fate. And that's exactly what happened. As a result of Jesus' sacrificial death, he paid the debt of sin that no man couldn't on his own. And it was this strike of the heel that Satan did. He struck the heel of Jesus. He killed him. But because of that, it will result in a total crushing of the head of Satan. So you can see why Satan is so enraged. At this point in time, he's so enraged and he's still determined that if he can wipe out all eternity, especially, I mean, all people, especially the Jewish nation, then he can still have victory over the Messiah, that he can still win. He's still looking out for himself. So what's the significance of the the second coming? The second coming of Christ will happen when the Jewish people as a nation accept Jesus as the Messiah. That's why G, that's why Satan is out to wipe up, wipe them out, because if he can keep the Jewish people from calling out to Christ as the Messiah, then he's still thinking that he's still going to have the ultimate victory. That's why Satan is so determined to wipe them out before they acknowledge Christ as the Messiah. Listen, Satan knows who Jesus is. He knows who's, who he's up against. And he knows that if he loses the seed war, that his time is over. 
And then he has nothing left but destruction for ahead, ahead of him for, forever. He knows Satan reads the Bible. Understand that. He reads the Bible. He just doesn't believe it. But he knows it. He knows exactly what the Bible says. The prophet Hosea says this about the Jewish people calling out and acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah at the end. That's the key. Hosea chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. Or this is actually chapter 5, verses 15 through chapter 6 and verse 3. He says, Then I will return to my lair until they have borne their guilt and seek my face. This is God speaking. God says, I'm going to return to my lair until they've borne their guilt and seek my face. In their misery, they will earnestly seek me. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. And the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. Verse three, let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to his to acknowledge him. This is talking about the Jewish people recognizing that Jesus is finally the Messiah. And then the prophet Zechariah, another Zach, another prophet of that time, says something very similar in chapter 13, verse eight and nine. He says, come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. So Satan is convinced that if he can keep the the Jewish people from calling out like this, that he can win the seed war and that he can preserve his own skin if Satan has skin. You know what I'm talking about? So that's what this battle is about. So now, the fourth question is, what are the consequences of this judgment? What are the consequences of the judgment of the sheep and goats? Now, understand the time frame again. By this time, the world will be in such chaos, and the Antichrist so focused on killing every Jew that it will require the help of the Gentiles, the surviving Gentiles, to help them escape and survive. The Jewish people will be needing help. Remember, the 144,000 are sealed, but they have, they have saved many others. Those others that were saved are not protected like the 144,000. So Satan's attacks are still going to be great on the Jewish nation. And this is where we're starting to see the reality of what this judgment really is. So let's go back to our text. Matthew chapter 25, starting at verse um, 33. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then verse 34, then will the king will say to those on his right, okay, the sheep, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And then he goes on to describe what we've already read about when they're hungry and clothed and so forth. So the context here. Is, is, is setting up this, that those on the right are the sheep. They are the saved Gentiles that harbored and abetted the Jews. Basically, the Jewish people needed help, and these people, these Jewish people, sorry, these Gentiles were the ones that were feeding them and clothing them. They were protecting them while they were in great trouble even at great risk to themselves because they were being sought after more than anything else. The Antichrist was trying to destroy the Jewish people and the Gentiles people, the nations, the Gentile nations were helping them. And to these people, they are promised life 
and they will hence be allowed to enter into the millennial kingdom. Chapter 20, uh, verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. But those on the left are the goats. And these are the Gentiles that serve the Antichrist and rejected the Jewish people. These will be cursed and sent into the fire that was prepared for Satan and his demons. Matthew twenty five forty one. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from you, me, who you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So the end of the matter is this. It's really pretty simple. Those that choose Christ and then do what he commands as a result of their choosing to accept Christ through God's grace will be rewarded and those who do not will be punished. That's the same thing we have in our hands today. It's the same choice that we have today. The sheep nation, along with their surviving Jewish remnant, will be those that will enter the thousand-year millennial kingdom, and they will repopulate the world. And we'll talk about this later. But there's going to be a surviving group of people, Gentile and Jews, that will enter the thousand-year millennial reign as humans, as just as you and I are today. And their job is to repopulate the world and to recreate a civilization, but it will be under the rule of Christ. And it will be a perfect rule, a perfect, a perfect theocracy. It's going to be a kingdom, not a democracy. It's going to be a kingdom where Jesus is king. And now the church, the bride of Christ that came back with him, we will be reigning with Christ in our supernatural bodies over the human conditions on the earth that will be for a thousand years. And all those that enter the millennial at this time, they will be believers. But we're going to find out that many of their offspring will turn out not to be believers. And that brings up the last battle that we'll talk about another time. So, But the goat nation, Jackie, would you come please? But the goat nation will be killed. And they will go into hell awaiting their resurrection because all people will be resurrected again. All the dead that were not in Christ will be resurrected again to, to, to face their final judgment in the great white throne judgment that is at the end of the thousand-year millennial kingdom. I don't know about you, but this excites me. I mean, I, I'm, I'm thrilled with these, this teaching because I see the reality. And guys, this is going to happen. <laughs> I mean, this is not um, a fairy tale. This is really going to happen, and we're going to see it. It's just a matter of time. And, and we're going to be able to witness it. So as we're going to see it, I want to know all about it. I want to know as much as I can. It doesn't mean I know all the answers, but I want to be able to look at Scripture you see, because, and here's what's important about this, because as we see how Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled to every detail, that gives me confidence that God's promises for me will also be fulfilled to every detail. If God promises something to me today, I know he's good on it because I see him fulfilling all of his prophecies to this point. 
If God missed something of his prophecies, then it would give me reason to doubt. But he is extremely detailed and extremely good at accomplishing everything he says. Therefore, I can hold him to be good for me and my days today. If you're struggling with something, recognize that the God who promises these things will fulfill it. And he'll make your promises true, come to pass. I love that. If he's faithful to keep his promises of the Old Testament, he's faithful in them in the New Testament. Another very important aspect of studying this prophecy is that because he's so detailed and intricate in all of his details, that we know that the rewards of the faithful Gentiles serving the needs of the people then will be fulfilled and ours today. Because we can take a look. A lot of these prophecies are, are dual meaning. I mean, he's talking about things happening then, but they still apply to today. Because I still need to take care of people in prison. I still need to take care of people that need help. It's still my job. It's still our responsibility as the church to take care of those that are less fortunate than us. Amen? So we have to, we have a responsibility today. And so we can take these prophecies that are so far out there, but yet we can bring them into today's world, into our own time frame, our vernacular, and we can apply them to benefit ourselves in that as well. And I want to turn now to the last chapter of the Bible, because sometimes it's good to read the last end, right? You ever get a book and read the end first? Yeah. Well, I, I don't. Because I like to surprise. But some people read the end first. But here's the deal. We can read the end of the book and know that we're going to win. And I want to end today with this. In fact, stand with me, if you will. Let's read this together. Revelation chapter 22, beginning at verse 12. It says, look, this is Jesus speaking. I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside of the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. That's for you and I today. Amen. Father, we just come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, we are so grateful of the way that you so well tell us of our future. Not to scare us, not to bring doom and gloom, but to bring us joy and peace and excitement of what's ahead. That helps me live my life today knowing that you have it all in control. I have no reason to fear anything because you have all things in control. And so for that reason, we say, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. We're ready for you. We're calling out to you. As the Spirit and the bride say, come, we're calling out to you. Come, Lord Jesus. 
redeem us, save us, and our families. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sing with us. gives a doxology in Romans chapter 15 and I think it's very fitting it says may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit may the joy of God may the, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. Pastor asked this before, do you trust him? Do you trust him? So that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, we just trust you. Fill us with hope today for what you have in store for us as we go into this world. Let us be the light into this world, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be blessed. Have a great day.